Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello? Hello. <clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace, a podcast that highlights the role of women peacebuilders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to their communities. Eavesdrop into their conversations and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States. Their dreams and their hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, and Dina Zaman, a Malaysian journalist and co-founder of Iman Research. This is She Talks Peace. Salam, dear listeners! This is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, welcoming you to another episode of She Talks Peace. And I'm so sorry to have missed an episode. Our good friend, Dina Zaman, my co-host, managed to uh, be the one to <laughs> conduct our conversation last week. And that's because I was in Honolulu. There was a conference of the ASEAN Regional Forum uh, talking about uh, security and peace. And I was invited to give a talk on women, peace and security What and what we've been doing here in the Philippines and in ASEAN. But on my last day, on my way home, I caught COVID. And I certainly hope that none of you Catch it. I hope you're taking precautions when you're in closed spaces, when you're in buildings. And think about this. I'm very careful. I'm masked everywhere. Even when I go walking outside, I'm masked and I still caught it. COVID is horrible. And if there are ways to minimize getting infected, oh, please, please, dear listeners, please do that. But at any rate, while I was in Honolulu attending the ASEAN Regional Forum, my dear friend Dina sends me a text message. And her message is, hey, have you been following the Emilia Hanafi case? And I just thought, what, what's going on? Who is Emilia Hanafi? And I, I started checking it out. I, I looked into internet sources. Oh my goodness, it's, it's a sad case. It's a, it's a tragic case. And dear listeners, did you, did you listen to a previous episode on She Talks Peace? I think it was episode 45 with the Attorney General Shah Edumama Alba. She's the Attorney General, female Attorney General of the Bangsamoro Autonomous Region. And we were talking about women's access to justice. I don't know if many of you are familiar, but the Philippines had a successful peace agreement with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. 
And now we have an experiment on a new form of regional government, which is parliamentary. And Sharia, Islamic law, is supported. It's recognized. Although, of course, it just focuses on personal and family law. But when I was having the conversation with the Attorney General Lai, she did agree that women's participation and women's rights under law still needs to be expanded. We need to educate our women about what their rights are. We need to improve the, the system so that they can effectively gain justice. Now, I thought our friends in some ASEAN countries, like Malaysia, might be having a better kind of a system. They're richer. They have Islamic universities. So, you know, training in Sharia, looking at the link between Sharia and our national legal systems would be investigated more. There was an article in 2018. I think the title was, Are Women Getting More Justice? Malaysia's Sharia Courts in Ethnographic and Historical Perspective. Long and short of it, the author, Pellet, I think, did the research, wrote about it, and came up with some, some possible defects, areas that need to be corrected. And now comes the case of Lia and it's it's truly a sad case because this if this could happen in Malaysia, this can most certainly happen in Muslim communities such as what we have in the Philippines, in Muslim Mindanao. But we're very lucky today because we have as our guest a trial lawyer, counsel, also himself activist, a writer, his managing partner at Nizam Bashir and Associates in Pejuang Johor of Malaysia. And our friend Nizam Bashir graduated law from Bond University in Australia, then joined the bar in 1998. He holds a diploma in Sharia law and legal practice from the International Islamic University of Malaysia. So not only is he a secular lawyer, he is licensed to practice as a Sharia lawyer as well in the state of uh, Malak. What I find really exciting about uh, Nisham, Nizam Bashir is that not only is he passionate about the law and has written articles about it, but he also looks at the links between Sharia, our secular laws. So one of the articles that is authored, Breaking the Silence, Voices of Moderation, Islam in a Constitutional Democracy. That is going to become more and more an important area of conversation in the near future. And I'm very happy that he does not shy away, according to what I've read, he does not shy away from conversing on issues related to the Constitution and those that impact on public interest. Welcome, Ms. Bashir, to She Talks Peace. Hi, Amina. Thanks for having me here. It's so good to, to catch you because last week you were 
uh, in some rural areas, I guess, taking care of cases, Celia's case. It's partly it's down to that, but it's also the fact that it was Eid, Eid al-Adha, and, and Muslims normally have got certain ceremonies that we engage on that particular day. So I was in a rural area for that reason. Oh, that's right. I know that completely skipped my mind because I was quarantined. I was in bed. So, yeah, I completely missed the, the celebration. But at, at any rate, I'm, I'm really happy that Dina sent me that, that message because this is an, a case that is of a tremendous interest to me and I'm sure to many of our listeners as well. So tell us a little bit more about Emilia Hanafi's case. What's, what's it all about? I know it involves her children and, and her ex-husband, but do tell us more about the case. I, I suppose on the one hand, her, the issues that she's facing isn't too dissimilar to perhaps what other single mothers may be facing in whichever courts. I, I don't think it's necessarily confined to the Sharia courts, the issues that she's facing. And perhaps there are parallels to what she's going through also perhaps in civil courts for other single mothers involved in a domestic dispute with their spouses. Yeah, But in, in, in her case, she has a consent order on custody with her ex-husband. Following that order, there were some issues regarding the excess appointments as her ex-husband puts it, essentially what the custody orders, she has custody of the children and the ex-husband will be able to see the children on particular dates or particular occasions. Yeah, But as I, as I mentioned earlier, there were some issues. The husband alleged that he was unable to see the children and she was not keeping up to her end of the bargain, so to speak, under the consent order. And that's his allegation. So he filed a committal application. And after hearing parties, the Sharia court judge sentenced Emilia Hanafi to seven days imprisonment. She filed an appeal and for various reasons, the appeal was dismissed. At some point, she engaged our service and uh, we filed an application with the civil courts to point out that there were a number of questions that needed to be looked at. Uh, and those questions were pure public law, administrative law questions. And that's and that's presently in courts, and we are waiting for the court to, to rule on that. And that's just a brief background as to what's before the courts at this juncture. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What, what I found nerving is that it looks like a minor administrative issue. And to be given seven days in jail for that, uh, I don't think our Philippine legal system has has something that that honors so is this is this penalty if you will is this something that present in both the malaysian civil court as well as sharia or is this the sharia being upheld by by the secular court system my view is in the first place i don't think there's really that much distinction in terms of how either courts would rule in a similar situation. And that's why I wanted to say that there was this parallels between civil courts in some sense and even Sharia courts. And, and armed with that thinking, I actually went to speak to some civil civil family law practitioners. And they said to me, I mean, equally, they were quite baffled at, at what transpired. And they said to me, that sounds very odd. In a civil court, if something like this were to happen, at most, it could be some sort of admonishment by the civil courts. It could be a fine by the civil court. So it's on the lighter end of whatever punishments a court may impose, in, even if there was a committal application. And, and really, I think the idea always has to be in family matters like this. You would want to encourage access and you would only meet out a punishment like this if there's been persistent sort of conduct where there's disobedience with the court order. So when I looked at the committal application, it didn't seem to be the case. Yeah. And, and, and that really is the, the sort of jumping off point that I, I want to, to approach this issue. Because I, I think ultimately, if there is no degree of disobedience exhibited in the relevant application, then I think for the cops to impose a seven day sentence, it sounds a bit harsh. Yeah. And, and I think the idea always has to be to encourage parties to keep number one to whatever that has been ordered by the courts rather than seeking to be very heavy-handed with whichever party yeah because ultimately family matters i think it, it, it if if the clients themselves are spoken to and informed that look if the respective spouses are able to see their children there is a direct connection between that and even the party ensuring that they meet their maintenance obligations. Yeah, because there's a relationship. You care for the child. It, it's not some sort of abstract idea. And I think the idea should be encourage compliance, encourage um, parties to ensure that, that the relationship with the children is there. Because you must also keep in mind at the end of the day that it, it is in the best interest of the children that they're able to see both parents. And if one parent, for example, is being sentenced to prison, that actually disrupts the relationship a child has with their parent, at least for that period of time. So you should be very cautious, I think, to, to sort of impose that sort of a sentence on, on parents and disrupt that relationship a child has with their parents. So in the present instance, when we look at the alleged act of contempt, for example, it didn't seem to me that uh, that degree of persistence is there. I think all they were talking about was like, one weekend dates being swapped around for another dates. Yeah. I, I mean, those are my instructions. It was merely just about one weekend dates and one other date in the middle of the week. And 
So there was negotiations happening between the parties as to whether or not that would be a good weekend for him to be able to see the kids and whether she should be able to have access to the kids for to take them out for a particular outing. So in that context, seven days prison doesn't sound quite right. Yes, absolutely. But but this is this is something that's a little worrisome in the Philippines and we have our Sharia court system that's recognized by by law. The interpretation of Sharia, there are many schools of thought, right? To interpret, especially when you're now making judgments and issuing issuing penalties. In this particular case, it is very harsh. The penalty is is very harsh. Doesn't the national system, the national secular legal system, have uh, supervision, some kind of control over the Sharia court system to say, "Hey, wait a minute, this <laughs> it could be a gray area. I don't know." But couldn't they have stepped in and said, "This is a little bit too much"? I wonder why. The decision was upheld. Yeah, I think there's there's a natural tension, quite apparent from the question, when we say that Sharia courts ought to be subject to supervision by secular civil courts. Yeah, and and I think that particular tension has been addressed in the Malaysian constitution or the Malaysian experience in a particular way. And and the relevant constitutional provision in question is Article One to One One A of the Federal Constitution. And and how it's been formulated is. Essentially, if something is within the jurisdiction of the Sharia courts, civil courts have got no say over it. So, I think the logical extension, therefore, is if you can point out there is something that they have acted beyond their powers, beyond their jurisdiction in a particular way, then civil courts can step in and say, "Hang on, you can't do that." And and the reason why I say there's a sort of a meeting point. Between the two courts is number one. There's a federal constitution. The federal constitution is the paramount legislation in Malaysia. Yeah, and within the federal constitution itself, they, they, I guess you could say there's a hierarchy of hierarchy of provisions within the federal constitution. And one of the most important area I, I would say is the fundamental liberty. For example, if let's say someone who is in the Sharia court facing the legal system in the Sharia court, but he's denied the right to counsel, for example. So clearly, that's part of his fundamental liberties, and clearly, if that happened, the civil courts can step in to say that look, what you, you what the courts there have done is not right according to the federal constitution. We are the guardians of the federal constitution. We have a right to tell the Sharia courts you have to accord this right to whichever individual. So similarly, in the case of, I mean, beyond beyond constitutional rights, similarly, when there are there is an absence of jurisdiction. Being exercised, or there is a the Sharia courts are exercising powers beyond what has been allocated to them. Yeah, the civil courts can interpret the relevant uh, visions to say your construction of that particular provision is not correct. You have acted in excess of powers, and you can't do that. Right. So similarly, here in the context of the committal application that was filed in the Sharia courts, the question is whether the Sharia courts have the ability. To hear the committal application, because the Sharia courts in Malaysia is quite peculiar in the sense that they only have jurisdiction within certain uh, territorial limits. All right. So, for example, if in KL they they are only able to exercise powers over persons within Kuala Lumpur 
for those who who uh, although they live outside of Kuala Lumpur, but they 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 have a for example a domicile in Kuala Lumpur. So there there are limits, for example. So in other words, they can they can transgress those limits by purporting to act against, let's say, someone in, for example, the northern states, if they don't comply with a certain procedures. So one of the things that was raised in the application filed in the civil courts was the Sharia courts acted in excess of powers because she doesn't reside in Kuala Lumpur. All right. So it is in very specific areas, civil courts can actually step in and say that, look, you can't be doing what you're doing. So to answer your questions, are Sharia courts subject to supervision of secular or civil courts in any way? Only in a certain sense, in a very limited limited way. Oh my God. So that opens the arena for a lot of potential conflicts, especially when you're not talking about the International Declaration of Human Rights, for instance, to which Malaysia is, is a, a signatory, I, I think. And uh, I, I, as you were, as you were explaining about the, uh, the federal system, I couldn't help but think about what's happening in supposedly very secular, very democratic United States with the overturning of Roe versus Wade and how now states, some states can deny, can ban it. Some states can uh, allow it. And uh, now there are these issues of what if you are traveling from one banned state to another state where it's allowed and when you come back and you get arrested i mean this these things are so complicated it makes my covid adult mind ache but but nizam i i wanted to get your 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 thoughts as many muslim communities are now recognizing the value of the sharia court system are women really getting more justice? I mean, you already said it. Sometimes there's really no difference between the Islamic courts or, or a court that's based on, on religion and uh, the, the secular court when you're talking about issues like women's rights. I mean, women generally are on the, what do you, how do you describe it? We're, we're on the receiving end. We're, it's not exact balanced in, in our favor. But do you do you worry Are women going to get more justice as Sharia the Sharia system becomes more operational and more states will will support having Sharia courts? I mean, the, the, there's there's a reason why I'm actually characterizing both courts as being similar. I, I do understand perhaps the sources of law may be different. One is, of course, either divinely inspired or even rooted purely on divine law. It, 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 whereas the other, you, you arguably can say, is man-made law. Yeah? And, and the reason why I say there are parallels between the two, ultimately, it's about trying to, I mean, at least in the context of family law in particular, you're trying to address particular issues. And I think in the context of family law, it's, it's the, the parallels are simply this. You have either husband and wife, children, children are there. Parties are separating. There's a question of who's entitled to the properties. There's a question of who's entitled to custody of children. There's a question of who's entitled to access of children. So you, you can see that there, there are actually a lot of similarities between the two courts in that regard. But of course, there's always things I think that can be improved upon if you look at it purely from the perspective that this is at the end of the day a legal system. It's tended, intended to achieve at least some form of justice for whichever party. All right. And we, we must not lose sight of the fact that 
I mean, it's an interesting point that you mentioned that ladies may be on the receiving end. We must not lose sight of the fact that there's Article Article 8 of the Federal Constitution, which talks about equality between men and women before the law. So in that regard, I think we, we have to ensure at the end of the day, the experience of either is the same. And if we keep that principle in mind that everyone is equal before the law, then just as much as one party attaining their rights in the whichever court, the other party must also be enjoying a similar experience whenever they approach the courts. And I think that's why I'm always framing it back to what's the, the meeting point between whichever courts, whether it is the civil courts, whether it is the Sharia courts. The meeting point is always the constitution. The meeting point is always the fundamental liberties and Article 8 of the federal constitution. I, I accept the fact that maybe some provisos to Article 8 but ultimately, within certain parameters, uh, ultimately still, there must be equality before the world. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. But there's the rub, right? When you're talking about the both parties being equal in status, having equal access. Uh, I mean, I've been, I've been looking at the reforms we discussed for Sharia courts, even here in the Philippines, Attorney General Lai Dumama Alba was just saying that in the Philippines, in Muslim Mindanao, Sharia courts are actually becoming the women's courts because the issues discussed are related to mostly family, inheritance, divorce, child custody, and, and all that. The basic problem is when you're looking at the interpretation of the judges, uh, in the Sharia court system, there seems to be a tendency to be more equal towards the men than it is towards the women. And that article by this gentleman, Mike Pellet, does mention that and looks at the, the tensions and the oppositions between, he says, Islamic law and women's rights. And, uh, but does say that there are moves to improve the system so that you do manage to have more protection for the lesser partner versus the, the stronger partner. So in the Malaysian system, and I'm asking you this, Nizam, because maybe we can also push that in our own Sharia court system in the Philippines. In, in the Malaysian system, what do you have to do? What can be done to ensure the measure of equality that we are entitled to under law, whether it is Sharia law or civil law. Let me first point out the, I think the, in all of these discussions at the moment, yeah. At the end of the day, I think it's important to remember that God is always on the side of the oppressed. So those who proclaim that they are up there upholding God's law, but they are oppressing one segment of the society, to my mind, they are not upholding God's law. So that's, that's my starting, starting point, yeah? But how do you equalize the experience for either party before the Sharia courts? I, I think it, number one, it's most important 
to have that dialogue, to point out firstly, look, the experience in, let's say, another court is slightly different. So whether it is a perception or whether it is a reality, I think you need to have that discussion to actually reinforce the idea either this is not merely a perception, but it is actually a reality. And the reason for, for us saying that is ABCD. Now, what I find, for example, in the civil courts is that there's annual statistics that is launched by the civil courts showing, firstly, for example, the disposal rates, showing, showing for example, the length by which a case is disposed in the civil courts. And if, if I were to look at whether that is prevalent in the Sharia courts system in Malaysia, I don't quite see that. So now if we have that, on the one hand, we have something objective we can measure whether if you say my perception is wrong, at least I can point to something that's common to both of us to say that, look, you're not right. But at the moment, it becomes almost anecdotal. I hear people coming to see me, and most of them are ladies, and they're complaining to me, look, my case takes so long to, to be disposed of. And, and when you talk about equality, that, to my mind, is also a hallmark of equality within the legal system. When one particular party's case is disposed of in a much slower and longer rate as compared to another party. That can't be correct. It certainly is wrong. Justice delayed, this justice denied. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think we have to be all the more cautious whenever you're ta- trying to say that this is part of God's law, but you're not upholding to something so basic as equality. You're just going to leave people dis. I mean, I, I, I'm okay to being told I'm, I'm wrong in this regard. I don't have a problem. But I like to see the facts that the other party, for example, is relying upon to say that this is why we say we are right. It's just that, when, as I mentioned earlier, I have quite a number of ladies coming to see me and they say to me, look, this is our experience. And they say that, look, our cases get too long to be disposed of. If you talk about maintenance, it's almost next to impossible to hold men to account in terms of holding on to the obligations. So things like that, actually, I think are quite troubling and I think affirms the fact or affirms the, the impression that, uh, for example, ladies have that courts are not particularly sensitive to, that, to their needs. And I think we need to be very careful when those sort of complaints are coming up. And it's quite easy to remedy, by the way. It's not something that's so difficult. Because you're just dealing with, for example, timelines. And yeah, you're absolutely right. In cases like this, it doesn't matter whether you are a Sharia court system or civil court. Justice delayed is, is justice denied. I know. I mean, we have, we, we have many jokes in the Philippines about the, the length of time it takes to take care of, of one particular case. And we can, we can swap stories some other time about our respective legal systems. But going back to Emilia's case, are you optimistic about her situation? Is she going to be able to have her case tried in, in her favor? Because honestly, I, I, I really think it's unfair. I'm not a lawyer, but just, just looking at, at the, the case. I, I suppose I'm a perennial optimist. And, and because I have that sense of enthusiasm about how law is supposed to function and work, it, it's absolutely why I think I bring these cases to the civil courts and, and allow that dialogue, so to speak, to happen between both systems, uh, between Sharia courts and even the civil courts. Yeah. I, I don't have any, any, I, I don't necessarily have any negative assumptions about whether a case is not going to succeed merely because there's some religious components to it. 
as I said, ultimately, as long as you treat it as just another matter, if, if it is in the civil courts, it is not acceptable there, it certainly cannot be acceptable in the Sharia courts, more so perhaps because it is a matter that's in the Sharia courts. So, in fact, I think the, the bar is higher that, that the authorities have got to meet because it is a Sharia court case. I'm, I'm glad you have that, that optimism. Optimism and lawyer, normally in, in my experience, they're not, uh, they don't really go anti-nahadism. I'm sorry to say, my sister's a lawyer. My daughter is a lawyer. She's, she, she works in the, in the Supreme Court. And I wouldn't equate optimism and, uh, and law, but I'm glad that, that you do. And I'm, I'm, uh, I hope that Emilia Hanafi is going to get justice and that her children, I understand she has got three children, will, three sons. And I, I certainly hope that they will be able to reunite with their, both parents actually, because the, the father is entitled to, to visitations as well. So I, maybe you would like to share your optimism about uh, justice and women's access to justice, not just in Malaysia, but in, in, in our region as well. Let, let's put it very simply. Women are a very important part of society. I mean, perhaps at one point in time, they were perhaps only confined to contribute only in terms of household work, etc. But times have changed. They are now out and about in society. They are, you could almost say they're almost in every sector that one can imagine. And I think that's, that's, that's a good thing because that affirms, I think, a very sacred belief. And I'm sure this is not just confined to the Malaysian constitution. Everyone is equal before the law. Everyone should be given equal recognition in terms of their ability to contribute in, in any facet of society. And I think it's a shame, certainly, if those very important members of our community, our society, come forward and complain that they're not receiving equal treatment. And if that's the case, I think the, the, the law should reconsider its stance and make sure that they accorded due recognition and due respect as that equal members of our society. And I hope that whatever cases that do come forward, whatever judgments that come up from it, reflects that in its, in, in, in all its, uh, all its, I suppose, form. That's, that's all I have to see. Thank you so much, Nizam. And here across the sea in the Philippines, I hope and pray that Emilia Hanafi will get the, the justice that, that she deserves. And with your sense, with your belief that the Sharia court system should be more just towards the oppressed because they are operating under God's law, then I have confidence that Hanafi, that Emilia Hanafi has the counsel that, uh, that she needs in this time of crisis. So thank you so much for, for joining us. And uh, to our dear listeners, if you're ever in Malaysia and get into some issues with the Sharia court system, you might want to check out the website of Nazim Bashir and, and Associates. <laughs> Nizam Bashir, Bashir and Associates. So having said that, thank you again. And that to our dear listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode. I hope you have more information to be a little bit more optimistic about women's access to justice in Malaysia and in other 
Muslim communities where Sharia is being implemented. So farewell for now. This is Amina Rasul from the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy. Thanking everyone for listening to She Talks Peace. Goodbye now. She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.